Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Six Ways from Sunday podcast. This is a weekly show that explores humanity's deepest questions that all of us yearn to find our own answers to. We're more than halfway into season two of the show now, and we're trying to create a community with this podcast of people who are seekers or curious hearts, people who are looking for some weekly spiritual fulfillment or nourishment by drawing inspiration and learning from the stories and unique perspectives of others. Today's guest, Steve Whittington, is someone who's always pushed himself to the edge of his abilities in order to bring life into focus, to find clarity, and to expand his own realm of possibility, whether that be through mountain climbing or in the business world. In our conversation, we look back on the genesis story of who Steve is and the way he wound up being. And then we dived into the story of his Everest expedition in the spring of 2013, and some of the life lessons that he brought home from the mountain. Steve, welcome on the Six Ways from Sunday podcast, and thank you so much for carving out some time today to join me for a cup of coffee. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to hear your story. So we, Steve, you and I met uh, in this uh, leadership development course, Being a Leader Through Unstoppable Conversations, which was uh, over the course of a, a couple months this last spring. Before that, we didn't know each other from Adam. Um, you were kind of one of the people in the group of 22 or 23 that I was really curious about, like, I wonder what that guy's story is. And looking at you across from the room or sh- hearing you share throughout the course uh, little bits of, of your life and, and your work, um, I was just really keen to have a conversation with you. So now we're, we're out of the uh, structure of that course and able to sit down and just get to know each other a little bit more right on the air of the, of the podcast. Um, now, part of the reason also for inviting you on, obviously, is that you have this amazing story that you summited Mount Everest, and it's something that you talk about a lot. Um, and and I think that there's, I know there's going to be pieces of that story that will really resonate with our particular audience and the life lessons and things that you learned through that adventure and through that achievement. Uh, you speak about it a lot from the sounds of it that you've, you've shared that story of your expedition. Why don't we back up a little bit from, from there and just who is, who is Steve Whittington and, and tell me a little bit about yourself and then we'll get, we'll get into the, into the story of your Everest story. It sounds good. Well, first, thanks for the coffee. Uh, that's, uh, you know, for having a conversation over coffee, bringing coffee is a, a key gotta, thing. Got to so. bring the coffee. Yeah. It's yeah good so coffee thanks too. for that. You're uh, welcome. I, I need, I need fuel all the time. Uh, the, the question, who is Steve Whittington? Great, great question. I, uh, describe myself high level with a, with a few elements. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a husband to my wife. Second, I'm a, a father to my children. Uh, third, I would say, uh, I'm a leader in all aspects of my life, whether that's uh, personal leadership or leadership within, uh, leadership in your community, uh, leadership in your professional life, um, and, uh, leadership in the mountains. Uh, then I would describe myself as an athlete, albeit an aging athlete. And lastly, and not leastly, uh, but it is an order of priority for me. I'm a business jerk. I'm involved in a lot of different aspects of business, being director of, uh, of a board or uh, for-profit and non-profit boards, uh, and uh, having an ownership stake in, um, well, it was last year was two businesses, now it's only one, and uh, being an executive for uh, a number of organizations. So I've got a very uh, 
untraditional type of career path. And that's the, the last aspect of my life is a all around business jerk. Okay. I like that. It's a new term for me. Um, so yeah, you're obviously a very busy guy. Um, I don't know what stage of life you were in exactly when you decided to get really serious about mountaineering, but tell me a little bit about the passion that you have for um, alpine sports and for, for climbing. Yeah, people ask me how I got into climbing and um, a really interesting metaphor around it is taking something completely unrelated and connecting the dots back as to how it got to where it is. So some people say, well, geez, why are the, the booster rockets on the space shuttle Columbia a certain circumference? Why are they that big? Well, it's because they're made in California. They got to ship across the States and they got to go through the mountains and the tunnels are only so big around. Oh, okay. Got it. That makes sense. And these sections go through and they're that big. Well, who decided the, that the tunnels were going to be that big? Well, that's dictated by the gauge of the railway track. Okay. Oh, sure. Well then why is the railway track gauge that gauge? Well, that's because when they started to pull mine or coal, uh, to do the steam engines that they're doing back in the Industrial Revolution in uh, in Britain, they had these carts that they made that created the gauge for the track, which then became the gauge for railway locomotives. <laughs> well, then who decided on that width for the carts? Well, they had carts already that went behind horses. And so the carts for the horses became the width for the track for the carts for the coal, which then became the width for the track for the gauge for the locomotives, which dictated the size of the tunnel. Oh, Okay. So the circumference of the booster rockets on the space shuttle Columbia are dictated by the cart that goes behind a horse. And the width of the cart behind a horse is dictated by the width of the back end of a horse. So yeah, the back end of a horse has ultimately decided the circumference of the rockets for the space shuttle Columbia. That's now, a crazy story. Anyway. And it's true though. Yeah. It's all well, true. you know. Maybe I take some liberties, but it makes a point. Yeah. So people say, well, how did I get into climbing? Well, if you look at how I grew up, you'd be like, how did he not get into climbing? I grew up in northern Manitoba. I grew up for at least half my life without running water and electricity, literally having to hack a hole in the ice to get water and carry it up to the cabin, light a fire. We didn't, you know, that was our warmth. Wait a second. How old are you? <laughs> you <laughs> well, don't look old enough to have well, grown up that we way. We were in a, a, a northern area. Yeah. Uh, I had a trap line, which, uh, you know, my parents were uh, very, you know, fiscally responsible and said, take that money you make from the trap line and put it in an education fund for your university. Because they knew I was going to university. And my dad, uh, still at the age of 75, is a guide, an outdoor hunting and fishing guide. Wow. Uh, he was the best shot uh, when he was in the Navy. I was the best shot in Manitoba for a junior rifle. I mean, I've had an outdoor lifestyle. It just happened to be in the northern, uh, almost tundra, wastes of, of our, of our uh, nation. Now, you transport that background to Western Canada, to Lethbridge, you know, 16, 18 years ago, and you see the mountains, it makes sense that somebody that has been an initial TAC firefighter jumping out of helicopters, having a trap line, working with a dad that's a guide, being pulled out of school all the time, having a float plane tied up to your dock, living basically very rustic without, you know, electricity, running water. Uh, I remember lights that were just propane. 
right? Yeah. Our, we, I, we had a propane stove. That was, that was a big thing. We got a propane stove. We didn't have to cook over a cook stove. I mean, we did have a modern house in, uh, in the city of Thompson, but we lived mostly at the lake or at our lodge, which okay. is often tents or whatever. So half our life was wow. rustic, half our life was, was modern. And uh, so when you look at that upbringing, you say, well, geez, when you got to the West and you could see those shining peaks, you'd be drawn to the outdoor. And uh, my first mountain, I was because of a, an individual that knew me. Um, he had been my client for a while and then we were working together at the same business thereafter. Uh, he said, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm leading a group of uh, young folks up this mountain and I know you have an outdoors background. I'd like you to come. Uh, he's a person I highly respect. A bishop was a bishop in the Mormon church at the time. And uh, so we went up, we went up Crow's Nest Mountain. He did not get to the top. I took his group to the top. He didn't make it. And uh, Crow's Nest Mountain is a mere scramble, but it's, you know, it's an impressive peak in of itself. And that was my first mountain. And then I was hooked. What, you got the bug. Yeah. yeah. So that's hmm. how it all started. Well, so what, was there a moment? Was it, the, was it reaching the summit? Uh, was it just the, the whole climb as a whole, the experience of... Of guiding people, was there a specific aspect of it for you? Well, there's the there's the challenge, and and I if I look back at my life, I can recognize now that there's been many many times where I've faced some extreme circumstances that were life and death, uh, and you know some people say that people that are into extreme sports are adrenaline freaks, um, and I've been called that because I used to paraglide and kiteboard and downhill mountain bike and, you know, backcountry ski and the list goes on. Um, it actually does continue to go on whitewater. And I paired it all down to climbing because I find climbing creates a stillness and takes me to the edge. And the edge is when you're completely focused, hmm. when you're at the edge of your abilities and you're completely focused and you have to be because mm -hmm. of whatever the consequence is. In most cases in climbing, the consequence is severe. Yeah. And being able to get that clarity in our modern distracted world is a gift. Mm -hmm. And I try to get that as much as possible when I'm not in the mountains, when I'm in the world. How right. do I get to the edge? How do you get to that kind of flow state um, in That's your right. work, in your family life, and in everything? Like, so bring it back home from the mountain. You bet. Wow, yeah. cool. So... Take me from Crow's Nest Mountain to Everest. I mean, I'm sure that there's there's a span of time and many adventures in between there. But how, yeah. did, how did the idea get planted in your head once you had that bug of, you know what, I think I'm going to set my sights on, on the highest peak in the world? Well, uh, you know, interesting enough, uh, when uh, we got down from that mountain, I remember... Tom saying to me, well, now you're ready for Everest. And it was a, it was a jest, right? So the first mountain I climbed that, that was stated. And I had no uh, dreams of Everest. Like some people that go to climb Everest have been dreaming of it since the age of like, you know, four or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, I'm like, ha ha ha, you know, Everest. Uh, but I started climbing, kept climbing. And uh, then I did a, um, I was involved on a nonprofit board, Big Brothers, Big Sisters in Lethbridge. And uh, they had the uh, climb for kids and it was uh, Kilimanjaro. Kilimanjaro isn't a climb, it's a hike at altitude. And anyway, so I did that and uh, was able to uh, raise a little north of 20 grand for Big Brothers, Big Sisters, um, which that whole fundraising thing was a climb in of itself. That was the hardest part of the whole whole thing. Uh, so I respect people that do uh, fundraising like that. 
And that high altitude uh, environment, I guess is the way to, way to put it, is, is a different world. Mm-hmm. And that got me interested in high altitude stuff. And I was doing some technical rock climbing at that point in time and scrambling, but I wasn't doing any ice climbing uh, or mixed climbing or alpinism per se, like pure alpinism. Uh, but it was mostly like scrambling in a bit of technical rock climbing, sport climbing. So then I did this high altitude thing and I'm like, oh, okay. And then I started to learn about the seven summits and learn about some stuff and learn about the backlash around the seven summits and, you know, read Krakauer's book into thin air. And, um, and I was, I was getting more and more into the, the climbing community. I, I just started getting things, but I liked, I liked high altitude. Uh, I was, um, I do well at high altitude. I have, I just, like just, just physiologically, a, your body. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't get affected as much as other mm. people. And I'm like, well, there's something that I have this natural aptitude mm-hmm. for. Uh, so so then I started doing more and I did Aconcagua. I uh, led a group to the top of uh, um, Denali. Um, I was the expedition leader and the lead climber. I did uh, Albrus and I did a number of other high altitude peaks. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, and this progressed over years and years and years and uh, by that point, I was very proficient with ice climbing, and I member of the Alpine Club, and a leader for the Alpine Club, amateur amateur leader, and leading trips of people to introduce him to the mountains, and um, doing alpinism and north faces of stuff in the Canadian Rockies. And I'm like, okay, well, as much as I was doing, and I by you know as years went on, I had this massive resume of stuff that I've been climbing, including being expedition leader on international climbs. People are like, well, have you climbed Everest yet? And so I almost said, you know, I'm just going to go climb Everest to shut people up, which sounds sort of trite and a bad reason to climb Everest. But, um, you know, I'd, I'd be unauthentic if I, I didn't say that there was that background noise. Yep. Uh, I also had a climbing partner that that was his dream to climb Everest. And Everest is a lure. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a world. It's, 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 a different, it's a different environment. It's something that you, as much as some say proficient technical climbers will poo-poo uh, the whole Everest circus, everybody wants to see it. I think deep down mm. they want to see it. Yeah. So I wanted to see it. I wanted to climb Everest not the way Everest has been climbed uh, by a lot of client climbers. I wanted to climb Everest like, you know, how it, I feel the mountain deserves to be climbed. And okay. so, uh, you know, I connected with my mentor and, and friend, Wally Berg, and we set about creating a plan. And, uh, but that from the first mountain to Everest was well over a decade in between. Okay. So here's a, here's a question that I'm sure many elite climbers or people in other extreme sports as well get asked. Why, wh- what is the, what is the drive for, um, for mortal human beings to tackle this thing that is so dangerous and so unattainable for most people? Uh, and, and all you can really offer is your personal answer, but maybe like, do you have thoughts on why we as human beings are driven to try to achieve the unachievable or to... Sure. You know what I mean? Like there's something about something that is posed as, oh, that's impossible. That's like, well, now we have to. <laughs> like, yeah. What is that? Well, you know, um, there's, um, there's a great book I just read and um, the author's name is eluding me. Uh, he's a famous um, uh, author when it comes to writing about mountains. And I've read a couple of his books, but um, uh, he grapples with this question of why in about a 350-page book. 
why climb, why do the extreme adventures uh, from first ascents to first ascents, you know, first ascents is when you go down, the first person to go down a Whitewater River and, um, you know, like it's just, it's, it's really, it's almost comes down to like, what's next. And, and first off to back up, I, I am not an elite athlete when it comes to climbing. I'm proficient. You know, I know some professional climbers, they're the next level up. I mean, that's their job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm very, I, I'm very comfortable on all kinds of terrain and I can, I can move, you know, at a novice to expert level, but I'm not an elite athlete by any means okay. in that level. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that anyway. Um, but I have the same kind of idea of what's next, the same kind of drive. And the other thing that's interesting is you take people that are experts in a field. Um, and again, I, you know, I'm not elite, but I would consider myself reasonably expertise in, 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 in climbing. Uh, the sense of possible continues to expand as you get more proficient at what you do. Take what we're doing right now, and I'm not sure where you are in your podcasting journey, but as you get more experience, your sense of possible will expand. So when you look at something that you have no context with, no experience with, and you're like, oh, how do these people go up this face of this mountain? Mm-hmm. Yet somebody that's done a lot of climbing, they're like, oh, I can see the line. I got a, a break in the rock there. And yeah, it's a couple of quick moves and I'm to the top. No problem. Right? So yeah, you see it differently when you're yeah, part of that world. So, so the idea is what's, what's next. And um, so with Everest, for some people, it's a test. Uh, for some people, they want to go see it. Um, for me... I wanted to, I wanted to see it. I wanted to experience it. Um, I never had a doubt in my mind that I could summit. I didn't know if I would summit because Hmm. it's not up to me whether I'm going to get to the summit. The mountain's going to let me up or not. Right. So, um, so I didn't want to put it as a test of whether I can or not. I believed I could. I just didn't know if I would uh, based on the mountain conditions. Right. Which are ever changing. It's not like you're just going to look at the weather forecast and say, "Oh, tomorrow's a one week from now. It looks like it's going to be a great day to summit Everest." Well, actually, like, we we did that. Well, I'm uh, sure. Of course, you look at the weather, but yeah. I'm I'm more thinking. And I read uh, Krakauer's Into Thin Air book too, and how thinking about how at uh, the mountain is creating its own weather essentially. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that from one hour to the next, a storm can can oh, emerge yeah. that wasn't. Yeah. Wasn't forecasted, wasn't planned for. Like the conditions are just ever changing. And so there are so many variables at that altitude with the thin, with uh, in such a low oxygen environment, everything from your equipment to other people and the, the, um, the effects on your mind of low oxygen and just the, the weather that it's, it's really isn't just a cut and dry, like, am I capable to do that or not? It's not like, uh, can I run faster than this other athlete? Like, you know what your, what your kind of top speed is, you know what his is. It's, it's not simplistic like that. There's, it's so complex. Correct. And I encountered a lot of that up high. So to, to give people who are listening to this and I mean, in, on this show, we really bounce around from like a couple weeks ago, we were a few weeks ago, we were talking about yoga and we've been talking about meditation and generally what strings it all together is uh, just being on a journey towards wellness and wholeness as human beings. And I, and I believe that your story has a ton within it that relates to that. But for people who listen to this show, who know nothing about mountaineering, uh, and obviously everyone's heard of Everest, but give us kind of the Coles notes. Like we're talking about a mountain that 
the peak is between 29 and th- almost 30,000 feet of altitude. That's that's the altitude that airlines fly at. Like, yeah, this is a, a different world. Like, what does it take to get a human being to the top of this mountain? Well, first, uh, you know, will and physical ability. You have to be physically fit enough to get yourself up there. But uh, and then have the mental grit to carry on because it's a it's a suffer fest. It's just you're there's you're suffering, and uh, the other thing that needs to be understood is there's an acclimatization cycle that you go through. So you can't. If I was transported to the South Pole, which is twenty six thousand feet, I without any oxygen, I would pass out and be dead in you know. 20 minutes or something like that, right? Just, there's just, your body has to acclimatize to that lower level of oxygen to be able to have some chance of functionality. Right. Which takes days or weeks. Uh, yeah, weeks and months. So mm. uh, to put in context, I was away from Canada for 74 days. I was at base camp, uh, so above 17,000 feet for 54 days. Wow, just letting your blood get more uh, adept at just, transporting That's just oxygen. the time it takes to get up and down that thing with acclimatization cycles, yeah. uh, different weather patterns, that kind of stuff, right? So you kind of climb the mountain like three times. You you go up it and you acclimatize, you go back down and rest. You go up it again a little higher, you acclimatize, go back down and rest. You go up it again, then you go a little higher, you come back down and acclimatize wow. and rest. And then you go all the way back up it. <laughs> And, wow. and, and then you're, then you're ready for your one shot at the summit, so to speak. And the South Coal is at 26,000 feet. And then the, you know, Everest, uh, the peak of it's 29,029 feet or 31, depending on how it's moving around. And to put that into context, that's, that, that's like a whole other day. That's like a whole other mountain. Like it's 3000 feet. It's a big chunk of rock and a lot of, uh, you know, day mountaineering objectives, you know, you go up three, 4,000 feet and then go back down. So you're at 26,000 feet. Now you've got another mountain to climb, so to speak. Wow. And, and that's, and it just keeps on getting worse and worse and worse and colder as you go. So that's, that's some of the, a little bit of the overview of the context yeah. uh, that you're in. Um, and Everest isn't as uh, non-technical as some people would think. It's, it's, it would be considered um, reasonably, it, it's it's mountaineering. Like it's not alpinism the way the South Coal Route is done, or even like the on the Tibetan side. Uh, so it's mountaineering. It's not alpinism. There are alpine routes on Everest, which is just a whole other level of crazy for people to do that. Uh, but I mean, uh, you know the the Lhotse face, uh, the Yellow Band, uh, the Tenzing Step, the Hillary Step, like that takes some ability to be technical. And if you're not proficient at technical climbing, that's where all the bottlenecks happen. Mm. And uh, for my part, that's where I excelled, having a, a lot of technical background. And in some cases, literally climbed around people to get, just get around them and go faster so that I could get to the summit. And, and I did. I got to the summit by myself with my Sherpa, nobody around. Unlike mm. what happened this year where it was like stacked crowds, we couldn't see anybody. We had the top of the world to ourselves. Wow. For half an hour. So... Take me, take me there. Like, to tell me a little bit about, like, yeah, I mean, it was a huge, like you said, 67 days, something like that? Um, uh, I was gone from Canada for over 70 days, and, and then you, yeah. you get wow. over to Kathmandu, and then you have to hike into, it takes you 11 days to get to base camp, right? And yeah. Then, and then you're at base camp for 54 days. So what, I mean, we could spend hours unpacking your entire expedition, 
and mm, yeah, going it's, through it's the two to three hours to talk about. Yeah, I'm sure. So, and, and it, you probably uh, struggle to. I mean, how do you possibly tell that story in in ten minutes? But uh, kind of take me to to the mountain. What was it? What was well, it like when you when you, you go really back there in your mind? Could look at. I can see it. I can just I can visualize it like that. But the mountain was stages. And uh, the first stage is the Kumbu Icefall, and that's a, a jungle gym of terror. And so it's uh, all this, all the ladders are up going over crevasses and climbing up with uh, big ice towers and stuff is moving around. It's, it's a frozen waterfall. And it's that unstable. Moves, moves four feet a day, right? So you try to wow. get through it as fast. Your, your only security is speed to just get through it as fast as possible. So if you can't get through that, call it 2,000 feet in four hours, and you're moving like you're like exhausted when you get through it. At least I was anyway. So you're trying to move as fast as possible to get through it. And I, you do it at night when it's cold. And um, and in the put in context, the year after I summited in 2014, a piece of ice fell into the Kumbu Ice Fall and obliterated. I think it was 13 or 16 Sherpas. Like oh my gosh! You know, so it's a dangerous spot. And uh, so that's the first thing. And then you're into the, you know, you're basically going from Camp One to Camp Two, the Western Kumbu. And it's just this, it's, it's like this three-sided valley that is incredibly hot because it's all this reflection and, right. and, you know, and it's just, it's a suffer fest and you're still sort of slogging your way up another 2000 feet in this featureless plane of reflection. And, you know, you got to put sunscreen on the inside of your nose or cover your face because it will reflect up and burn the inside of your nose, keep your mouth shut. I usually would wear a you know, a buff over my, over my face. And, um, so you got to go through that. And that, you know, after you're acclimatized the first time, it's a bit of a suffer fest. The second and third time, it's a bit of a nice hike. And, uh, so then you're there and then you have the Lhotse face, which ends up being to get from camp two to camp four, because you have camp three on the Lhotse face. It's, you know, hacked out of the side of the, of the face and your ledge that you sleep on is a, the size of a tent. Uh, that's a total of 5,000 feet but you have a camp in the middle of it. So you get through that and then you're at the South Coal and then you have the Everest Pyramid to climb. Wow. So that's, that's the breakdown of the mountain and you have to just work your way through it and there's challenges and, you know, a lot of people wash out right at the Kumbu Icefall. They don't get through that. Yeah, I'm sure that it's, I mean, that's the crucible, right? That <laughs> a lot of people would not just have the stamina or have underestimated the challenge. It can be terrifying. I mean, you're going across three ladders tied together with sometimes 150 to, well, you can't see the bottom and the ladders are shaking and you're like stamp, stamp going across these things. and Wearing crampons? Or yeah. Like... Yeah. It, it can be unnerving. Um, but after you've done it 60, 70 times, it's a little easier. But uh, the first time is a little unnerving, even if you're a technical climber, because it's just a, a foreign environment. Yeah. So. And, and just the knowledge is in your mind that people have died in this exact place doing this exact thing that I'm doing right now? Like, how could uh, that not be in your mind? It wasn't in mine. Um, I just didn't think about it. Um, it I don't, was just a choice to not... Uh, I guess so. I, I don't I don't think about that. I, I I don't think about, oh, a whole bunch of people died doing this or whatever. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, deep down you know, but, I, but again, it's you're focused. Like, I get really, really focused. You literally focus on your breathing, on the next step, the next inch you have to move, and you're so dialed in that that's your, that's everything. Yeah. And, and that's what you do. And only when you get to a point where you have some security that you can think of other things. But for me in the moment, whenever I do anything like any kind of technical climbing, yeah. I am com 
everything slows down. I'm dialed in, totally dialed Hyper-focused. in. Hyper-focused, yeah. Yeah. So you, you talk about it being a suffer fest. When you, I'm sure there was a moment or many moments on the mountain when you got to the point where you thought, like, I, I don't have anything left. And I, and there's, there's, there's got to be this awareness in your mind. There has to be for your own safety that I still have to get back down. Like, you're, you're heading up. But you you got to leave enough in the tank that like getting down is there's no elevator taking you back down. That's right. So, as someone who's trying to calculate, uh, you know, what have I got left in my in my energy meter here? How do you how do you make that call of like do I keep going forward? And and at what point is it time to go back? Yeah. So. Uh, the way that uh, you do your your summit day push, it's uh, it's kind of like a, almost like a ultra marathon. So uh, what happens is you're at camp three, which is twenty four thousand five hundred feet, and you get up after a, a miserable night at twenty four thousand five hundred feet, and you uh, you start moving towards camp four, and normally that will take you six to eight hours to get between camps. And so if you start early in the morning, say five, six in the morning, you know, you could be there at two o'clock in the afternoon, four o'clock in the afternoon. So then what you do is you rest a few hours and then at some point in the night, be it 8 p.m. or it might be 11 p.m., you start going, you climb towards the summit in the evening or, and, and then you summit. It takes you, depending on the day, it might take you eight hours to get to the summit or 12, uh, but eight to, is about the average. So if you left at 10, you'd summit around 6 a.m. ish or so see the sun coming up over the world and you then are at the summit and then you go down and it takes you about four hours you pack up your gear at the south coal and you get out of the death zone so you add all that up you know you're in the death zone you know it'll be maybe a little over 24 hours that's the plan that's what you're supposed to do so that in of itself sounds mean and it is <laughs> no kidding the death zone meaning the, the zone where where uh, you're, 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 you you're cannot just, survive at that yeah, altitude. Yeah, you're, you're dying, right? Yeah. And and depending on what you read, it's like, you know, close to 25,000 feet. So basically when you leave Camp 3, you're starting to get into it. Most people say it starts at 26,000 feet for just, you know, a visual image of where it is on the mountain, right? Uh, I think it technically starts a little bit lower. Um, but anyway, that's the idea is to get you up and down out of the death zone as quick as possible. Okay, got it, right? That's what you're supposed to do. That's not what happened for us. We had to double down. We got up there. And it was a windy day, so it took us a little longer. We were, you know, all of eight hours getting between camps. Um, and then the winds were so high, we didn't go up that night. We stayed that night, and then we decided to stay another day. And so we stayed another day, and then we went up the next night. Whoa. When the storm hit, and 95-ish people were going towards the summit following me. I was the leader in front of the entire group. And, uh, and we had started a little earlier than everybody else. And... Uh, Daniel and uh, uh, Tashi had turned around and then all, almost everybody else that had been following us because we could see this snake of lights coming up below us, the storm hit and they just turned around. We kept going. And that was their one shot? Like they just had made the call that... Hey, I don't know, like some, some of them might have, might have stayed or they went back down and tried again. Like that happens sometimes. Oh, okay. We... We, we didn't, we, we knew this was our one shot. So we're in this storm and we had to make the choice of whether we're going. So the storm got so bad that at one point, a gust of wind came updraft up the mountain, picked up Dawa, my Sherpa, 
slammed him into me from slammed into me from behind like a linebacker, and we went tumbling down the face. I threw in my ice axe, arrested the fall, and the fixed lines were all covered with ice, and so they weren't the senders weren't holding to him, so it was just a free for all. Um, most people don't even take an ice axe because there's these lines to the summit now, but I just have never climbed anything without an ice axe, so I didn't understand. It's just foreign to me, right? And the only reason I got to the top is because I took an ice axe, which is what you do in mountaineering. You have, you know, the tools to mountaineer. So anyway, he's holding on my backpack and I'm like, okay, we got to decide the storm. It's bad. And he's like, yeah, 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 at the balcony, we'll decide. So the balcony is a place where you can stop and sort of fuel up and assess whether you keep going. So we struggled, pushed, pulled our way up to there. We got there. I had some liquid and... By the way, I had not been able to process food since Camp 3. So now I'm on, you know, uh, a night at Camp 3, another night at Camp 4, and here we are into the third night, and I haven't had food. Oh, my God. So anyway, so there we are, and uh, and we got to make a choice if we're going to keep climbing. Now, uh, our plan had fallen apart. I was supposed to lead, and for some reason, Todd um, had went around with his Sherpa, and now they come, they started coming down because it was so bad up high and, you know, um, taught at the point I know in hindsight was, was starting to get some cerebral edema. And so we chatted and tried to figure things out. And, uh, I just decided to keep going. I thought, well, it's not that bad. I mean, like it's a storm and all this stuff, but I mean, we've got fixed lines. Worst case scenario, we can turn around just like, I've been in lots of mountain situations. I've been in whiteouts before and this stuff. And so I'm like, we can figure this out. It's not that big a deal. But at the end of the day, if I'm really, really authentic, um, I had a friend, uh, that was passing from cancer and he, you know, he passed after, after I, I had summited a few months later and all he could do was put himself through chemo and radiation to extend his life, to be longer with his family. So he could put himself through that to extend his life. And I thought, well, if he can continue to do that, I can continue to go up here and, 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 and try to get to the summit so I could dedicate the summit success to him, which is what I did. Hmm. Um, so that's what ultimately kept me going. Cause if I'm honest, it was just for me, I would have turned around, wow. but it was for him. So you'd made that decision before even, uh, yeah, I knew, I knew, yeah, I knew I'd wanted to summit it, uh, do the summit success, uh, dedicated to him so that, uh, you know, his, uh, his kids would know the impact that that man has had in my life, uh, and that, uh, their father was such uh, a person that could inspire that kind of, uh, act. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, he, uh, so he was with you at the top. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Um, but his, uh, sacrifice in the last months of his life to his well being is what kept me going. Wow. So you yeah. were able to put yourself through the, the ringer and through this hell of this storm and everything that you had to suffer and endure to get to that point to even be able to make the decision of, do we keep going? Yeah. You got to the balcony, you pushed through, um, you talked about that that dedication being kind of your fuel. What was it like when you crested over the the, the so, final steps to the to the summit? You know what? There's a few things that happen. So um, there was a there's only I think eight people that summited that day, and they the the few people that kept uh, kept going caught up to me, and you know to this day I don't I don't know, but they didn't have a Western guide with them, and. Uh, and they were one of the expeditions that were doing things a little bit on the cheap. And we didn't have a Western guide with us, although Dawa is an amazing Sherpa and, you know, a guide in of himself. Uh, and I'm fairly competent. And so, but there's like a class structure. And so I had this feeling they thought that I was some famous Western guide that was, you know, because I had a sponsored gear on and everything. I was, you know, a sponsored climber. And um, 
And so like, well, if this guy's still going, we'll follow him, right? <laughs> blind leading the blind, right? Uh, but at any rate, some, and so I'm breaking trail like mid-thigh deep and I'm just exhausted. And I just can't, can't do it anymore. And I said, Dow, we got to let these guys go around us. So they go around us and they hit the Tenzing step and they, it's a technical part and they just slow down. So now I'm shivering uncontrollably and I can't, I, you know, I can't stay there. I got to, and Wally had told me, he goes, Steve, you're a really good climber. If you ever get to a point where you're stuck in the lines, don't stay there and shiver, climb around them. So I went down off the lines and climbed around them and then went up around the lines and climbed around them and then just, you know, I left them there. Me and Dow just kept going. So I'm going and going and going and I'm, and you know, I'm cold. I'm, you know, haven't eaten and, you know, exhausted. And I'm still trying to do this for, you know, my friend. And then I saw something. And I don't know what it is to this day, whether it was hallucinating, hallucinating or not. But it was, to me, I'm like, oh, there's somebody up there that's waving me on. It was, but they were like a figure that was circled in light. And they're just like, keep coming, keep coming, right? And, you know, keep coming, keep coming. Wow. I just kept climbing, kept climbing, kept climbing, right? And, you know, the the uh, science part of me says, well, that's just, you're a hallucinating man. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you think about all but, the stuff that's going yeah, on in your yeah. brain chemistry, uh, of course. And but that 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 happened. That the, Whatever, in my mind, that happened. I saw that, mm -hmm. and I did that, and I kept climbing. So then you got to you get to the South Summit Ridge and it's a mountaineer's dream. It's a thin little slice and you can see the South Summit. So I pull out my ice axe and we go up the South Summit Ridge and then you get to the South Summit and you can see the whole summit. And you still have to go down through the sickle and you got the Tenzing Step and arguably the most technical, horrible part of the climb is it's still ahead of you. You got an hour or so to go, but you can see the summit and you know you're going to make it, right? Right. And uh, so anyway, you, you get down through there and then we get to the Hillary Step and it's a technical rock face about 30 feet and, and the ropes are just, crap right but there was a cornice like a pile of hard snow and because i've done a bunch of mixed ice climbing which is you climb with tools on rock and so i'm very proficient at this stuff i just stemmed up it no problem and dowel followed like the path that i did and you know so like the hillary step <laughs> it took me like I, maybe it was a minute and a half tops like it yeah, wasn't wasn't much of up. a yeah wasn't much of a barrier for me uh and i you know didn't even do it with ropes just got up it and then it was just like you know, the, the amount of space to get to the summit is like a, about the width of a sidewalk. So it's just like a victory march to the summit. Right. And then you get there. And the beautiful thing is when I got up onto the South Ridge, what happened was, is the sun came up and, and I've climbed up over the storm. And so there's this bank of clouds below me. Right. Sun comes up and it just lights the world on fire. And then the other thing that's really, really cool that you get to see if you're at, at this point at a certain amount of time is the Everest Pyramid's sitting there, the sun comes up, it hits the Everest pyramid, and then the Everest casts its shadow in the world. Right. And you can see that. Wow. And then you get to the summit thereafter, hugs, pictures, and you look around at the world and we're there by ourselves. Nobody. The other climbers that were below us, you know, we didn't see them till we got back, you know, yeah. further further down. And and then this right. this um uh this figure that you described that you saw, you didn't ever see that again or it was just kind of leading no. you on as you were pushing yeah. to the top and yeah so what do you what do you make of that you you talked about how this the science part of your brain explains it away mm. is there another side of you that sees it differently uh you know i haven't uh explored it too much because you know I, this would be the first time i've ever shared this in a forum that could be heard by more than one person. So, you know, you'd be about the 12th, maybe 13th person that I've told this to, but now this will go out to the world. <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, 
I think there's a lot that is still uh, unexplained about our mind and about where we find inspiration. And I mean, there's some things that I think is just, um, you know, not true. Uh, and people are making things up uh, to, to serve their own narrative. But perhaps in order for me to serve my narrative at that time, I needed to see something. And wherever that something came from, it got me to the top. Hmm. After I had decided that I needed to keep climbing for my friend. So something, I needed to see something to keep me going and to cheer me on because that's what it did. Hmm. Um, so whatever that is, is what it is. And I'm not yeah. going to question it or even dig deeper than that. Okay. It's just what, what's so. So yeah. it's what I saw. Yeah. Wow. So this Everest is a mountain that has a top. Not many people reach it. Many people who try uh, don't reach the top. You did. Um, there are also things that we strive for as human beings that where it is impossible to ever reach the top. Do you have mountains that are that you're climbing in your life outside of alpine sports that um, that you have a specific goal like that, or that just you know that don't have a top, but you're striving to climb anyway? Well, I think uh, your journey in life should be uh, a mountain with no top. That you should be uh, constantly striving um, to have uh, to better yourself and to make a bigger impact in the world. So life in general is a mountain with no top. Uh, but specifically, you know, I align myself on certain areas and I'm very passionate about uh, customer experience. And you'll see here the manuscript of my book that's uh, ah. about to uh, come out in the next two weeks. Oh, that's cool. And uh, I, you know, I believe that small to medium enterprises, which are a big driver of our economic well-being, uh, are uh, facing some of the biggest challenges they've ever faced. And it's to do with um, globalization, the rise of the internet, the Amazon effect, all that stuff. Um, but it's, you know, people don't have to be resigned. There is a, there is a way. Mm -hmm. And it's about really focusing on creating an amazing customer experience. And a customer experience is rooted in the employee experience which is rooted in really how you show up and take care of people. So it's, it all comes back down to leadership. That's right. And, uh, you know, we need, we need more leaders in all aspects. And, you know, I have a young family, and so I'm passionate about uh, early childhood education, and I'm passionate about creating a sustainable society. Uh, I am, um, you know, politically, I'm probably somewhere in the center uh, you know, because things are so far left and so far right now, uh, what was once the center, I don't think exists. And, you know, I do believe we need, we need a strong economy to provide a tax base that will, uh, support, uh, our social services that we as a society have decided that we've made a social contract that we need to provide, but you need a strong economy to do that. And you need to balance it with all the different concerns, environmental, uh, you know, uh, you know, growth of capital and, and education and, you know, it all comes together. There, there is a third way, and uh, you know the discourse is is alarming. Um, and you know, for my part, uh, I'm putting my shoulder behind helping uh, the small to medium enterprises. And mm. you know, I'm an executive of a small to medium enterprise. I own a small enterprise. Uh, it's the space I've been in. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think it's under assault, and uh, I'm just not going to stand for it. 
So I'm going to stand up and try to do something, try to make a difference. Hmm. Uh, and at the same time, I'm going to try to make a difference in early childhood education with areas of my life that I'm involved in. I mean, this is what this is all about, creating a sustainable future and providing education for the next generation. Hmm. It's, you know, it sounds trite, it's what everybody says, but, you know, I'm, that's my next it's climb. Really, yeah, I can see that it's what matters for you. Like, yeah. We are here for such a short time, and I say this on probably almost every episode of this show, but the, the choices that we make in our life matter so much because we only get one life. As far as we know, this is it. This ain't no dress rehearsal. <laughs> exactly. And so that's, I mean, you, you, you came face to face with that in a very real way on the face of that mountain, on, in, in all of your adventures. Um, you're continually reminded that you're one misstep away from the end. Um, but even just in everything else that you talk about in your life as a parent and husband and business owner and entrepreneur and leader, um, we get one shot at it. And so let's make the biggest impact that we can and, and lead others and, and try to, yeah, yep. have the greatest impact that you can. It sounds like you're, um, you're really doing some things that, that are going to have a big, a big impact in the world. I, I hope I get a chance to read your book one day. <laughs> in about two weeks, you can, <laughs> you can buy it on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the big enemy. <laughs> yeah. Or, or my website. Uh, yeah. one of the two. Um, cool. So what's the title of the book? Thriving in the customer age. Cool. And so I think we'll, we'll wrap it up here, Steve, but, um, are there places that people listening could check out your work, check out, uh, maybe the book, uh, if it's, yeah, I mean, it might be my, available by the current, time we even get my this My current there, website so. is being redesigned, but it's, it's my name, stevewoodington.com. Okay. And everything to do with Steve is, is there. Um, you know, you could go to, uh, if you want to learn more about Everest, you could go to thequestforeverest.com, which is a website that I created uh, while on the mountain. Uh, to uh, journal my activities and all the blogs and audio oh, okay. recordings, all the stuff is there. You can you can go down a rabbit hole. It uh, it was printed off to, uh, and gifted to me all the all the writings uh, by a friend, and it's about a you know 300 page book of all the stuff. So there's if you want more details about my Everest climb, it's thequestforeverest.com, and you know, everything else is stevewoodington.com. Okay, well I'm looking forward to checking those out, and I'll put links to those uh, in the show notes. And I'm just really excited to, to get this story out to our audience and to share it with you. I'll send you the link as soon as it's ready. And I just really appreciate you coming on the show, Steve, and carving out the time today to sit and have a coffee with me and hear, hear more of your story. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed Steve's story and... Whether you're into extreme sports or not, I know that all of us can relate to that feeling of being on a mountain where the summit feels impossible to reach. So I hope that Steve's story offered you some inspiration and maybe some motivation in whatever you're dealing with in life right now. And I hope that you will join us next week for another great episode of Six Ways from Sunday. Take care and be well.